Last month, the metals company, formerly known as Deep Green, went public in a $300 million financing. Is this enough gas in the tank to make deep sea mining a reality? I'm with CEO Gerard Barron. Gerard, welcome to Kitco. Michael, great to be with you today. Let's start with a company. What is a metals company and how did it come together? So the metals company, as you said, formerly known as Deep Green, uh, we've been around over a decade now. And we're focused on one thing, and that's collecting polymetallic nodules from our license areas in the clarion clipperton zone in the Pacific Ocean. And the premise is that we're going to need a whole heap more metals as we start moving through this green transition. And we can produce them with a, at a fraction of the environmental and societal impacts by collecting these nodules and turning them into metals compared to the land-based alternative. A lot of questions, but you have it with you. What's special about nodules? I mean, the sea is a big place. Why are you specifically focused on these formations? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and it's a really special resource. And they form in a different way because they literally precipitate the metals that are in solution in the ocean water or in the sediment upon which they sit. And so this, this one in my hand would be three to four million years old. And it's, it's a, a nickel is the main revenue driver. There's about 1.4% nickel in this nodule and 1.1% copper and about 0.2% cobalt and about 30% manganese. And so it's very aligned to what base metals we need as we move through this uh, transition away from fossil fuels into electrification and it has other unique characteristics as well for example when we bring them to shore and we turn them into metals we generate zero tailings and zero waste and you know just on that topic alone last year the, the mining industry uh, was the largest generator of waste in fact there was around 190 billion tons of waste generated and, and to put that into context municipal waste was around 2 billion tons. So we can collect these nodules and, and process them and generate no waste and no tailings. So it's a pretty special resource. I know that you've had some studies on this, but could you just talk about uh, what the potential resource is, where these nodules are, and uh, what they would be like for uh, processing? Well, let's think about where they are. Uh, they were discovered way back in the 1870s. and, and British explorers wanted to know what lay on the bottom of the ocean. So they sailed HMS Challenger around the seas for four years. And they discovered them in a number of locations, but there's one area of particular interest. And it's this area known as the CCZ. And the reason why it's of interest is because a little bit to the right are the Rockies and the Andes that, of course, were covered in nickel and copper and through volcanogenic explosion. It means that all these metals ended up in the Pacific Ocean. And so as these nodules grew, they precipitated those metals and formed these very valuable um, time-appropriate resources. Now, we've, we're a Canadian company and we have resource statements on two of our license areas. And so we know that we have around 1.6 billion tons of these on those two blocks. And as a fun resource, because you get to see it, 
You know, it's two-dimensional. You don't have to imagine what's under the ocean floor. Instead, we take pictures of it, whereas on land we'd be drilling thousands of holes to try and put together the shape of this ore body. We literally get to see it running for thousands of, of kilometers uh, across the ocean floor. What's the metallurgy like? Uh, what is it like uh, extracting nickel from uh, these nodules? Yeah, so there are basically two approaches. And uh, back in the 1970s, when they were collecting these nodules under trials, and in fact, Kennecott built a, a uh, onshore processing plant, they, Kennecott, now part of Rio Tinto, uh, they used a, a process, uh, the Cuprian, which was mainly focused around the nickel and the copper. But we've actually, for the last decade, been running two onshore processing methodologies. And the first was uh, a pure hydromet, where we would basically dissolve them in an acid solution. But we decided to park that idea. We've gone with a more conventional uh, pyro and hydromet combination. And so basically, we, we melt them. And that first pyro step sees us with a manganese silicate material and an alloy or a mat containing all of the, the nickel, copper, and cobalt. And we then put that through a pretty standard hydromet flow sheet to either produce nickel powders or sulfates. We'll be, we'll be, we'll be completed the, uh, com uh, our onshore pilot work for the pyrometallurgy uh, work in the next uh, three, four weeks. So we've made good progress there. Uh, I think you've uh, touched on it, but um, I wanted to step back and then just mention about funding because uh, that was a really headline number that came out in March. Uh, that was a big announcement regarding the special purpose uh, acquisition. I want you to talk about uh, the funding, but um, I think you've mentioned it also just about the metals. Uh, yeah. You know, there's another headline around this is, is, is that deep sea mining, what you're targeting, it's really kind of targeted around the electric vehicle material space. Well, it's certainly very aligned with what the electric vehicle uh, industry is going to need a lot of. And Michael, it's interesting that in this nodule, there are eight parts nickel to one part cobalt. So, you know, as the auto industry, for the time being at least, has pretty well settled on a NMC 811 chemistry, then this resource is just perfectly suited to that. And so almost half of the revenues will come from the nickel and um, followed by the manganese, copper and cobalt. So you couldn't ask for a much better mixture of base metals given the environment that we're, we're moving into. But you're right, it was uh, an exciting moment for us to announce that transaction. Uh, in total, we'll see around $570 million uh, from the SPAC plus the pipe. We were originally um, planning to raise a $200 million pipe, but uh, we, were, we were heavily oversubscribed, and so we took a little bit more. And the good news about that is it, it provides us the funding to get to first production. And we're anticipating first production in 2024, which is you know, not far away in certainly resource development timeframes. And, uh, and the good news is uh, this transaction sees us funded to the other side of that. Now, there is ocean diamond mining. Um, are the processes that you're looking at uh, similar or how are they different? Well, 
Diamonds, firstly, are, are, are located in much shallower water. And so, uh, but you're right, there's a lot of diamonds that have been extracted uh, from our oceans from those shallow waters today. And, uh, but the methodologies, uh, you should think of diamond mining more as a dredging operation. Uh, and one of the thing, one of the challenges of diamond mining offshore is the waste, because essentially you are literally hoovering up large areas of ocean floor, these alluvial areas, and they about 2% of them might be diamonds. So the other 98% of the material you have to return somewhere. And so sometimes you'll see these operations um, where there'll be, you know, quite murky waters, plumes surrounding. Whereas if I draw a comparison to what we're focused on, and keep in mind we're only focused on polymetallic nodules. When we're, we have no interest in sulfides or C4 crusts because they really do require mining. Whereas these nodules just lay on the ocean floor. And so our collectors will, uh, using a jet propulsion system, collect the nodules, separate out the sediment, and then put the nodules into a air riser to be delivered to our production vessel 4,000 meters above. And then, of course, we offload them to a transporter and move them to shore for further uh, for processing. So from a, a waste perspective at 4,000 meters, we can be very efficient. Uh, and, and the good news around uh, the, the dust or the, the, the plume at 4,000 meters and, and below is that what we're finding is the particles tend to flocculate together, which means they... They bind together, they become heavier, and they settle quite quickly. And so, you know, we're confident we'll have some, you know, very good news uh, confirming not only our studies around that, but studies from other, other contractors and uh, institutions who've been focused on this very topic. Now, we are going to get, uh, there's some uh, marketing, there's some ESG issues uh, that have come up in uh, the headlines, but um, I just want to keep it on, uh, you're talking about production. What's the number one technical challenge right now you would really see to kind of making this deep sea mining viable? Well, if we cast our mind back 50 years, then there were many uh Great industrial names, Lockheed Martin, Mitsubishi, Sumitomo, BP and Shell, were starting to collect nodules. This industry was coming alive. Now, of course, uh, what stopped it was that the world had not agreed who owned the oceans. But the good news is a lot of the technical challenges were sorted out 50 years ago. Now, what's happened since then, of course, the offshore oil and gas industry, cable lane, pipeline, has uh, blossomed, and so the the technological development in that fifty years has been enormous. Uh, in fact, today uh, there was a news release by a Belgian company, Demi, who've been trialing their seafloor harvester in the uh, CCZ area, and they today announced uh, very successful trials. So. I think the technical challenge is really uh, about scale. 
because engineers love solving problems. And if I talk to the offshore uh, engineers, you know, they, they say, look, of course it's difficult, but, you know, we've been solving much more complex challenges than this. So we've got this. And when I speak to the onshore engineers, it's pretty all the same. You know, they, they, they see a pathway. All of our small-scale pilot work has been very encouraging. Our, our onshore pilot work that we're coming to a, a completion now with has been equally encouraging. So I think it's really going to be just uh, more around successful uh, implementation and then obviously reliability. And that's one thing that has improved enormously. In 50 years, we, we need lots of uptime. And so we're hoping that you know, that's something that will just continue to improve. And there'll be hurdles. Of course there will be. And, uh, but but you know, we're feeling confident that many of the technical challenges uh, are well in hand now. People in the mining space are, of course, familiar with uh, the deep sea miner Nautilus mineral, which had a lot of challenges. And that, of course, was mm -hmm. in the last decade. It eventually did go bankrupt in 2019. What's different this time that you think deep sea mining can succeed? Sure. Well, I always say um, Nautilus were like the pioneers who ended up with the arrows in the back. You know, they went out there, blazed a trail, um, but totally different to our efforts. For example, they were focused on seafloor massive sulfides. And <clears throat> that represents an entirely different uh, challenge because you really do have to go mining those. You've got to you know, build big machines to turn big rocks into little rocks and then pump them to the surface. So firstly, um, and they're also the seafloor massive sulfides are located in shallower water, and those areas tend to be more productive. So there's a lot more uh, biomass, more biodiversity in those areas as well. The other thing is that while Nautilus uh, found some of these systems, they didn't find a lot. So the size of what they were able to identify was a, a fraction. I think they ended up with around 6 million tonnes of these seafloor massive sulfides. Now, I've already got 1.6 billion tonnes identified under our 43-101. And, of course, they operated in Papua New Guinea. And we all know that some of these developing jurisdictions can be challenging. Governments change. Uh, you know, the rules can sometimes be a little bit flexible. And in the end, I think Nautilus, uh, you know, just had a, a, a series of events and setbacks. And of course, they were operating during the GFC, which meant that financing was challenging. And, and But probably one of the most um, important factors was that this new demand for the transition away from fossil fuels was only just beginning to take hold, whereas now there is an enormous amount of focus on, on the need to make this transition happen and what the true environmental cost might be of increased metal production. And so, you know, you need a lot of things going your way to get a new industry started. And I get the feeling that, you know, we've got a lot of those things, including the capital markets being open to allow us to do this transaction, of course. And so, you know, hopefully our timing is right here, Michael.
uh, remarking on the scramble for EV materials, uh, Cleantech CEO Sam Riggle uh, said OEM investment in nickel miners is inevitable uh, due to the scramble for metals. Uh, Japan said it wants to be self-sufficient in battery materials, possibly looking at ocean floor mining. Uh, you know, uh, you've mentioned it uh, with uh, the opening of the financial markets. It just seems like there's a lot of partnerships that are available to you in the EV space. No, I think you're right. And, you know, we've we've had the benefit of speaking to those uh, EV companies for the last two and a half, three years. And so they're challenged by the availability of raw materials to build their batteries. They're challenged by the price and they're challenged by sustainability. Now, this is a new set of problems for the auto industry because they always had a very commanding position in the supply chain. And, you know, we've seen in recent months, car companies have to close their manufacturing facilities because they can't get hold of a simple semiconductor chip. Now, battery metals will be, you know, even more impactful, I think. And so there is no doubt that if you're a major automaker, then you'll have to vertically integrate because you can't just push this supply problem onto the supply chain because you might find your place in the queue is you know, not ideal. So, you know, we've seen obviously Tesla lead the way with you know, building their own battery cells. We've now seen some other automakers make some announcements that they plan to, to lay some bets in a variety of areas. So, you know, and that's exciting news for a company like us that's trying to develop or planning to develop the, the world's largest battery materials asset. I mean, the opportunity to partner with some of those uh, automakers who need to, to vertically integrate opens up an enormous amount of flexibility for us. The other players I see in your space are GSR and Lockheed Martin's UK Seabed Resources. Uh, do you cooperate? We encourage. We encourage. We, we cooperate around issues uh, to do with the regulator, uh, meaning that you know, we, we support um, you know, positions that, that are reasonable, uh, whether it's under standards and guidelines and but generally, you know, it's, it's, we've all got our own strategy and, you know, we've got a very clearly defined one at the metals company. And so, um, yeah, I'd call us you know, in a pre-competitive stage, but we're encouraging one another. I probably wouldn't go as far as uh, cooperating. Now, Gerard, the other headline was uh, the uh, signups that were done with the World Wildlife Fund, and then that was Google, BMW, and a handful of other companies uh, stating that they were asking for more study of deep sea mining. Uh, you pushed back uh, strongly uh, comparing the impact of mining on land versus uh, deep sea mining. Uh, we understand uh, the stories, but kind of on a PR basis, what's a strategy to gain wider acceptance of deep sea mining? How do you get ahead of the story? Well, by awareness, you know, we, we think that uh, we, we came out pretty strong against that position because we thought we had to. You know, if, if the names of companies that we were in dialogue with had been on that list, that would have been a heart-sinking moment, but they weren't. They were companies that we'd never, ever spoken to. And so 
you know, to take a public stance like that, you know, I thought it was important that we come back and say, hang on, there are some other issues that we all need to be thinking about here, and this is what we're doing about those issues. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that's the challenge at a wider level as well, because, you know, if I was to, to like, protect the oceans is a very easy idea to get behind. I want to protect the oceans. I consider myself an environmentalist. And if you looked at the terrestrial mining industry and said, now we're going to do that in the oceans, you'd go, that doesn't sound a very good idea at all. But of course, it's nothing alike. You know, we're talking about collecting these nodules off the ocean floor. We're talking about, uh, you know, one of the, the least uh, densely populated, lowest biomass areas on the planet. Like, there is... 1,500 times less biomass where we pick these up from than when, where we're collecting nickel from in Indonesia. And when you start to understand how that impacts climate, because, of course, those rainforests are our carbon sinks as well. So it's an education task, and I, I think you know, we're in it for the long game. Uh, we invest a lot of money. Uh, in the environmental science part of it. You know, our, our boat has been on the water for the last six weeks. Uh, this will be our first campaign of, of 2021, but there are three more. It arrives back to San Diego. It heads straight out again two weeks later. I mean, we're investing, you know, we'll invest $75 million on our environmental impact uh, study. Uh, and so... I think it's just about being transparent. It's about being open, letting people see the results. I mean, we we engage uh, scientists from universities and, and organizations all around the world. Part of the deal is they're free to publish, you know, their findings. And so, yeah, I think you know, it's 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 a long game. But I think when people start to understand the tangible differences between this resource and the alternative, they're going to get behind us because it's a, it's a, we're a hands down winner. What's the milestones for the metals company over the next 12 months? So by the end of uh, this year, we'll have our harvester in the water. Uh, and by middle of next year, we'll have our, uh, we aim to have our end-to-end -end production system being piloted on our license area. So that's a really exciting moment for us. Um, we also have a lot of commercial conversations underway. You know, we're, we're, we're taking some of these customers with us along the journey of understanding the environmental uh, challenges that, that we're addressing. And so uh, obviously the onshore pilot processing work is, is coming to an end for the pyrometallurgical, uh, we'll, we'll shortly go out to tender for some of the pilot uh, processing hydro network. Um, we, we hope to have uh, an area identified for our first onshore processing plant um, where we can ship our nodules to in 2024 to turn them into battery metals. Um, you know, obviously the geopolitics that are very active in the world today are quite helpful for us because you know the world has finally woken up to the fact that China has invested 
well ahead of the curve and dominates the material supply of battery um, metals. So, you know, that means governments are saying, well, you know, how can we encourage you to locate in our jurisdiction as opposed to someone else's? So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, exciting action happening at the metals company over the next year. And, and of course, now that we're moving to a public stage, you know, we have a, a, a voice that can be heard, you know, and so that's one of the uh, main reasons why we went down this path. One was to get access to capital so we could uh, accelerate, you know, the projects. And the other was to, to get a louder voice so we can share this very, very important story. Gerard, thank you for speaking with Kitco. Hey, Michael, my pleasure. I've been speaking with CEO Gerard Barron. He is with The Metals Company. My name is Michael McRae. You are watching Kitco Mining.